Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Andrew Koppelman. Andrew is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science and Philosophy Department Affiliate Faculty at Northwestern University. He has written on many issues, uh, many of the culture wars issues that many people uh, think about. He's written about the uh, Obamacare, he's written about gay rights, he's written about many, many, many topics. Uh, he's written more than 100 scholarly articles and many, many books, including the most recent book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Uh, that's what we talk about. We start the conversation with talking about why libertarianism is so popular um, and has been for, for quite some time. We talk about how libertarianism is a mutated form of liberalism, as he mentions in the book and in the conversation, and um, he explains what that's about. We talk about Hayek and his views. We talk about rights, such as property rights and liberty. We talk about taxation, uh, Ayn Rand. We talk about the role of regulation, what liberalism looks like in 2023, uh, Obamacare, and many other topics. Um, I've, I've been wanting to talk about libertarianism for a while. And, you know, every time I, I read books or on it or whatever, it is always a little confusing and, and it's always biased. I'm either reading it, uh, written by libertarians who are saying it's the best thing since sliced bread or, you know, reading it by people that are just trashing it. And I found that Andrew's book was great because he's obviously a great scholar. He did wonderful research and it's very readable and really just kind of tracks the history of it and really just kind of just looks at it on the basis of its arguments. Um, you know, does this hold up? Does this not? How could that work? How does that make sense? And it, it wasn't a book necessarily trying to put down libertarianism, but more of just saying like, well, here are the claims and let's see if they hold up. And, you know, in fact, a lot of it just doesn't seem to hold up. And there are other um, kinds of ideas and, and systems that we use that could be better. Um, his book is great. I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, he was a, a real treat to talk to. Uh, again, he's, he's super, super brilliant. I really, really enjoyed talking to him and the conversation, how he explained everything. And, um, yeah, as usual, uh, you can find this conversation at converging dialogues.substack.com also on YouTube, uh, subscribe, um, and follow and share widely, um, with those places. And uh, now I bring in Andrew. I am here with Andrew Koppelman. Andrew, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, you have written a fantastic book. It is called Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Um, it's, uh, it's fantastic, and we're going to talk all about it. But before we do, just tell listeners uh, who you are, uh, what your background is, uh, where you're at currently, and uh, what you're up to. Uh, I'm Andrew Koppelman. I'm a professor of law at Northwestern University. Uh, I've been here for a long time. Uh, I write about law and political philosophy. I also have a PhD in political philosophy. And I'm interested in the way in which political philosophy affects law, which it does pervasively. Law just is political philosophy with guns. Uh, <laughs> people have ideas about how the state ought to behave. 
And some of those people actually run the state and get to decide what it's going to do. That's so right. uh, you've got to look at the reasons for using the state's power in this or that way. That's a problem of philosophy. Mm, mm, yeah, no, that's, that's nicely put. Um, okay, so so let's we're going to talk about libertarianism, hopefully real deep dive here. Um, I guess the one thing is, is that the first kind of lead in here is, well, we'll define it in a minute. And I know there's different definitions of it, but. One initial point here is, why do you think libertarianism is appealing or alluring? Or why is it interesting for some people? Is it this kind of, you know, I kind of feel politically homeless, or I don't like the right or left, or or is it really just this commitment to the ideals? What do you, what do you think it is that has a kind of um, popularity, at least with, with, in some circles? Well, I think the core of libertarianism really is suspicion of government institutions. So libertarianism is the idea that uh, if government has anything at all legitimate to do, not all libertarians agree with that, some are anarchists, uh, it should protect people's persons and property and do nothing else. And uh, it's kind of odd, given that uh, in contemporary America, we're dependent on all sorts of government services as a basis for being able to live our lives in reasonable health uh, but uh, and safety. But I think that uh, part of why there is a market for it now is people have less confidence in institutions than they used to. And so there is an attraction to a philosophy that says, look, you don't need those institutions anyway. You don't need anybody. You can take care of yourself. It has some psychological attraction, even if it is unmoored from reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's. Uh, I just, I just uh, read this book and had this conversation with uh, Jean Twangy, and she writes about generational research and data. And one of the points she made is that since the age of the boomers, there's been this gradual each generation more and more and more and more uh, distrust in institutions, right? Mm-hmm. And we see it now. I mean, this you know continue with Gen X and then millennials, and now again with 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 Gen Z, and there's it's not getting better right and so mm-hmm. i guess to your point is well there's a market there's an appetite for this because it's like well if you don't have institutions you got to have something so why not just rely on myself and ha- mm-hmm. not have government involvement so i guess there's there's some conversation here about you know you've defined libertarianism in in one sense but to me there seems to be different there's there's different shades here there's different branches there's yes. different forms about it That's and so right. How do you, what are these kind of different iterations, I guess? So uh, what I try to do in the book is tell the story of America, 20th century American libertarianism, how it got started. Uh, and uh, so the two main forms are either uh, forms that claim that reducing the size of government is going to make people more prosperous and happier, which really depends on what kind of government you are attacking. Originally, it's attacking socialism, centralized government control of the economy. That's Friedrich Hayek's target. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, then there is a later form of libertarianism that doesn't care about consequences at all, that just thinks that it is wrong, morally wrong, for government to do anything beyond minimal protection, police protection, and that's it. Uh, And uh, so what I try to do in the book is look at the main arguments that uh, have pushed people in both of those directions so that you you can 
read the book and learn what those arguments are. And, you know, I do philosophy. I, Having learned the arguments, I can see what's wrong with them. So the book tries to explain to you what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why I wrote the book is that uh, I wrote an earlier book about the Obamacare litigation, which was really driven by a group of libertarian law professors who were trying to read their ideals into the Constitution. And so in the course of trying to understand them, I tried to educate myself about libertarianism. And I found that there was no good critical book out there that sort of gives you an overview of what is libertarianism, where did it come from, what are the arguments? Because at the core of Libertarianism is a philosophical position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a philosophical set of philosophical arguments. What are those arguments and are they any good? So I wrote the book because I think there's a real need for that kind of book. If, uh, there's, uh, if there is a poppycock that is widely believed, then it is important to try to uh, chase this poppycock with the truth and disseminate the truth in the same way that, you know, there are still people out there who actually believe that vaccines cause autism, mm-hmm. a scientific claim that's completely exploded and false. Uh, and so all that you can do is chase after it and say, no, no, here's the science. So really the same thing with bad political philosophy. If people believe arguments that are no good, then you try to explain to them why the arguments are no good. Mm. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed your book, because it, it, it really is centered on that. Um, one, one point here is that you say libertarianism is a kind of mutated form of liberalism, uh, yeah. which, was, which was interesting. And uh, once you explain it, it kind of makes sense. But maybe just kind of uh, say something about that, about how you know, there's there's a connection there, but it's just all chopped up and kind of mangled of sorts. So, what, right. so we start of? with the idea of liberalism. Liberalism is the idea that everybody's plans for their lives matter. Everybody ought to be able to control their own lives. Everybody ought to be the master of the direction of their own lives, get to decide for themselves what kind of life they're going to live. And other people have an obligation to respect each individual's uh, plans for their own lives. That uh, what we're aiming at in politics is the freedom of the individual. And that actually is a radical new idea in human history. For most of history, people were there to be slaves of the king or to advance the true religion or aiming at the dominance of the master race. Or, you know, you uh, look at the way that Vladimir Putin is conducting his war in Russia. He doesn't care at all about individual Russians. He's willing to sacrifice lives like they were of no value at all because he wants what he wants. Liberalism is opposed to that. Liberalism thinks everybody matters. What's distinctive about libertarianism is its strategy. It says that the way to give people control over their own lives is to shrink government down either to this tiny little nub of police protection and nothing else or to get rid of it altogether. And it's false because government is not the only dangerous source of power. There's private power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if uh, If my neighbor is free to do what he wants and what he wants to do is emit pollution that shortens my life and uh, gives my children cancer, I'm not freer. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So so the emphasis here on on liberalism and and, because you're kind of painting this picture of, you know, sometimes people will say like, well, I'm classically liberal, but they don't know what that really means. Right. And so there's this idea of. Classical liberals are, are, are interested in, in people's freedom and how they have this type of freedom. So you're, as you're mentioning there, the strategy is different. So 
in, in this way, the tenets of libertarianism are freedom from government, right? Mm-hmm. Strong property rights, you know, no, you know, no government involvement. I guess where did it kind of go wrong? You mentioned Hayek, and then there's Rand in there well, as well. Where so, did it kind of get mixed up? So uh, classical liberal, if you're going to use that term, it really goes back to the liberals in Britain in the 19th century who were opposed to things like the Corn Laws. There were high tariffs for wheat, Mm. which basically raised the price of food for everybody, including very poor people. But if if the price of wheat was high, that was good for landowners who (laughs) were disproportionately powerful in parliament. And the liberals wanted to get rid of that stuff and uh, enable free trade because that was a way of promoting freedom. And so they were generally in favor of free markets. Uh, You see a variety of that classical liberal perspective in the writings of Friedrich Hayek, whose work is really the beginning of libertarianism in the United States. In 1944, he writes a book called The Road to Serfdom, which is arguing against central government control of the economy. And uh, he's arguing against a very prominent view that central government control is important. In the late 1930s, uh, you look at the world of the advanced industrial countries, the most admired economic managers are Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because they've turned their economies around. While Britain and France and the United States are all still deep in depression, those economies have turned around. And so lots of people think, uh, and it is the platform of the British Labor Party, that we need central control of the economy. And during World War II, the Labor Party uh, makes the argument that we can't go back to free market capitalism again. It's uh, going to produce ruination again. We can't do that. So Hayek, who's a professor at the London School of Economics, he was born in Austria, but he's working in London, writes this argument against the platform of the British Labor Party, arguing that central control of the economy is going to be wasteful and tyrannical. And that if you want to promote prosperity for everybody, you got to have a free market. Now, when he writes this, uh, he's aiming at the British Labor Party. But in the United States, there are lots of business people who are very unhappy with Franklin Roosevelt and are having a lot of trouble explaining why they're opposed to the New Deal. And then The Road to Serfdom gets published in the United States, and Roosevelt's opponents Grab hold of it like a drowning man grabbing a plank. This is what we were looking for. This is a, this is why central planning is no good. But it's a category mistake right from the start because Roosevelt is not never proposed central control of the economy. The New Deal was not the platform of the British Labour Party. Mm. Roosevelt was always basically a free market capitalism plus a welfare state. Historians say that Roosevelt saved capitalism in the United States, and they're probably right about that. Uh, So there's that mistake from the beginning. But if you read Hayek, lots of people like libertarians like to cite Hayek without really reading him. He uh, says, well, of course, there's no reason to think that markets distribute in a way that's at all fair. Markets are efficient, uh, but uh, they don't give people what they deserve. It's a mistake to expect that from markets. And there are sometimes market transactions hurt third parties, and you can't trust the market then either. Pollution is not a problem the markets can solve. Uh, I can sell something that you like 
and that you are willing to buy by operating the stinkworks that uh, put cancerous chemicals in the air. And all of the people who get hurt by the chemicals aren't party to the transaction. They don't get to decide whether to be in the transaction. Capitalism can't solve that kind of problem. And Hyatt was open to the possibility of regulation for that reason. And smart contemporary libertarians like Richard Epstein understand and appreciate that. And uh, so they want there to be free markets, but they also understand that you've got to have some kind of regulatory apparatus if you're going to really get the benefit of markets. People have to be made to internalize the costs that they're imposing on third parties. Mm. Yeah, you explain that really well. And I think that the, the one question here that might get people confused is that Many people will make this claim towards, you know, liberals or people on the left here in the U.S. that they just want government everything. But in reality, you mentioned at different points in the book, you know, Obama in a lot of ways was yeah. kind of following Hayek, right? It was, you know, he saved the the big banks, right? Got a lot of heat from it, right? But he saved a lot of the economy in many mm-hmm. in many aspects. And, and even with Obamacare, which I'm sure we'll get to at, at some point later in the conversation, you know, there wasn't just this full government running things. They're still having all of these different options. I guess what is it that for libertarians, that's not that they just want it all the way. But is it is it one of those things where it's like they're just not mindful or considerate of what's the impact this has on my fellow neighbor or my fellow citizen? Where's the breakdown well, here, I guess? I, I find that they have a lot of trouble focusing on issues of pollution or uh, or issues of, you know, I mean, sometimes external effects are negative, sometimes external effects are positive. And uh, so, uh, you, uh, you know, life is better if there are roads and public parks and basic scientific research that you can't necessarily make money from, but it is very helpful to the folks who are trying to make money from science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it's good to have an educated population. So it's good to have public schools, even for children whose parents are too poor to pay tuition. That's just good for the whole society. And those positive effects of government, which help promote the prosperity that capitalism delivers, uh or something that I find that when I talk to libertarians, they have trouble focusing on. Sometimes they claim that if you leave all of this to the market, uh, it will be better. But uh, and there are places where you know it's clear that you know, market competition is a good thing. It probably is a good thing that instead of government having its own institutions to supply food for poor people, we just have food stamps. You go to the supermarket and you buy the same food that everybody else is buying and uh, we'll subsidize your food. Uh, but the market is not going to deliver those people any food at all. In order to have something in the market, you have to buy it. And there are losers in the market, people who don't have anything worth selling. Uh, they are lacking in skills. They might be sick. They might be young. They might be old and frail with no savings. And uh, the market is not going to take care of them. Yeah. I guess what, still with, with Hayek, I mean, he, he wasn't for the central planned economy, but how did he think about, he had qualms about redistribution, which which a lot of folks that are on the libertarian oh. uh, uh, branch of yeah. things he do. He was and, really worried, I, 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 and this uh, became more of an issue as he got older. In his later work, he gets more and more terrified that we are on a slippery slope to socialism. And so he thinks that any redistribution at all is sending us down that road. 
And uh, now that's a judgment, you know, is it the case that things are going to stop here or not? Um, and, you know, all I can say is that uh, there has been a massive redistributive apparatus in the United States for a long time, and we have not slid into socialism. And if you look at the Scandinavian countries, which uh, I offer as, I think, the best example of how real the right way to run capitalism uh, Sweden has a much more robust welfare state than we do. If you are a member of the precariat, if you are a barista or you do long care, you have free health care. Uh, you want to go to the university, we'll pay for you to go to the university. Uh, we make sure that you have adequate housing and all of that. But what supports that is a system of go-go capitalism. <laughs> there are more billionaires per capita in Sweden than they are in the United States. So capitalism and a robust welfare state aren't inconsistent with one another. I've seen it done. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, the arguments you hear against that is like, well, they only have like 5 million people in Sweden or, or 7 million or whatever it is. And it's like, so maybe it's easier to manage because there's less people. And the United States is very diverse and there's 330 there's, million of us. There's more people, but uh, that means that there's more wealth. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, div- the fundamental difference is that uh, in the United States, the wealth has pooled at the top, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, largely on account of the enormous opportunities that capitalism creates. Uh, I mean, we now have worldwide markets. Mm-hmm. And so there are opportunities to become fabulously rich that were not there before. And uh, and that's great. Most of the billionaires uh, in the United States got to be billionaires because they figured out how to produce something that huge numbers of people want. And that's good. But uh, there's nothing sacrosanct about the distribution that a market produces. This is something that Hayek actually is very good about, uh, because Hayek is worried that if you expect a market to give people what they deserve, then you're going to look at how markets actually operate, you're going to get disappointed, and you're going to become a socialist. So Hayek wants you to understand it's the wrong thing to ask of a market, that it give people what they deserve. Because what people deserve is backward looking. We look at what you've done in the past and we reward you for good things you've done in the past. Markets are forward looking. Markets are about, you know, you are going to have an income based on the way in which you now can make yourself useful to other people. So I can work for years to come up with, say, a new drug that is a great treatment for some awful disease. I work for years. I come up with the new drug. Uh, It mostly works, but it has an unpleasant side effect. And then my bad luck, somebody stumbles across another drug for the same disease that works better and has no side effects. And I'm out of business. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm a wonderful person and I've worked like a saint Uh, I'm out of business. And I should be out of business because it's a waste of resources to produce my drug. There's something better. And Mm. that kind of thing happens all the time in markets. One of the good things about markets, that there is constant innovation, constant uh, advancement. But it means that uh, there is instability, that uh, that people uh, just can't count on things staying the way they are. Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, obviously things aren't static and things are always moving as you're saying moving yeah. forward. They're and moving. humans need some stability in their lives. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the nice if you're in Sweden and uh, your job suddenly becomes obsolete, you're not going to become homeless and you're not going to starve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
what what did Hayek kind of say or or what was he worried or concerned about, I guess, with potential inequality? So obviously he was very worried about socialism, but what about inequality, especially wealth or income didn't inequality? didn't bother him at all. He <laughs> thought that uh, it was important for there to be a bare social minimum that uh, kept people from starving because markets don't give people what they deserve. But he was terrified of anything beyond a bare social minimum because he put us on the slippery it would he was afraid that it would put us on the slippery slope to socialism in these respects i'm sorry to say while i admire hayek in a lot of ways with respect to the slippery slope argument he was a crank and he got crankier and crankier later in his career <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know if i fully go uh, agree with him either so i'm i'm with you on that but you know i may, maybe at the time i guess you could see some some worries about it but so, so let's talk about rights. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned this in the book, and I thought it was interesting. I, this is um, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't flushed out my thoughts on this. So I'm, I'm curious to to see what 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 you uh, think about this. But how do people, I guess, have a right to work and to own what is theirs? Right? How where does liberty fit fit into this? Uh, libertarians like talking about liberty, but what are those things about rights? Could you talk about this a little bit? Well, uh, so uh, the argument, uh, the simple libertarian argument is, uh, I look, I work and um, I, I get paid and here is my paycheck. And how dare the government take any taxes out of my paycheck? It's mine. Where do they get the right to take the money out of my paycheck? Mm-hmm. Now, this is already foolish because unless something comes out of my paycheck to at least pay for the police, I am not going to keep my paycheck for very long. Somebody with a gun is going to come and take my pay away. So uh, you know, I've got good reason to want government at least to protect my property. But, uh, but there are broader reasons why you would want... Well, at that point, we get into questions of why are there property rights to begin with? Because property rights aren't just relations between persons and property. Property rights are relations between people. If I own something, then that means that everybody else in the universe has an obligation to keep their hands off of it because it's mine. Mm -hmm. So then we get into questions about what people are entitled to expect from one another, what rights people have against other people. And rights have to be something that everyone's got a reason to respect. So a version of property rights that no one could possibly agree to that that some libertarians advocate is, uh, let us suppose that there is a drought and I have the only reservoir in the county and there's just no other water around. And I'll say that uh, I think that the water on my property is a sacred shrine. Nobody should touch it. That means that all of my neighbors have an obligation to die of thirst and to watch their children die of thirst because it's mine and it would be wrong for them to take it. Well, nobody could possibly agree to that scheme of property rights. It doesn't make sense to say that people have a right, an obligation to die so that other people can keep their property. But actually, a version of this argument was made, is still being made against Obamacare. Uh, when uh, the Republicans were trying to repeal Obamacare during the Trump administration. And there's no doubt that Obamacare is saving some people's lives. The argument that was made by people like Rand Paul and Mark Meadows was, you know, you can't do this because you're paying for it with other people's money. 
And uh, so uh, you're just not allowed to read. It's morally wrong to redistribute in this way, which essentially means that people who we could keep alive with easily affordable medical care have an obligation to die for other people's property rights. It makes no sense to think about property rights that way. The reason why there are property rights is because they're necessary to respectful relations between people. That means you can't have a conception of property rights that some people couldn't possibly agree to because their basic needs and interests aren't given any respect. You've got to think about property rights a different way. And you already see this in uh, the philosopher who libertarians most admire, John Locke, who uh, wrote uh, the basic philosophy of property that libertarians uh, hang on to, uh, books that he wrote in the 1680s. Uh, And Locke thought, uh, in an argument that I think will be familiar to a lot of your listeners, that uh, I get to keep what I've produced because I've mixed my labor with it, so it's mine. If you haven't mixed your labor with uh, physical things in the world, well, go and do some work. This is mine. And that was Locke's basic argument. But the reason why people had an obligation to respect it is because it's, uh, well, religious concerns come in here. God thinks that, Locke thinks that God wants us to stay alive and uh, creating safe places for people to work and keep what they've produced is more likely to preserve the human race. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Locke also thought that uh, even in Locke, there is an obligation to redistribute. Since the whole point is to keep people alive, then if you need to redistribute in order to do that, Locke thought, well, then you have to do that. I'll come back to Locke, obviously, because you talk about him a good amount. I guess the question I have is is about about rights. I mean, if you take the property rights, if you you divorce it from morals, let's say, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that be correct? So in your example, you know, I mean, it, it, it. We have all of these these moral uh, kinds of uh, intuitions about this, but if I say, "Look, I have the only reservoir, and, and I don't want to use it. I, I just want to, uh, you know, have it for me." And, and everyone's gonna, you know, uh, there's a drought, and everyone's not gonna have water, and they're gonna die. Well, that sucks, but it's mine. I mean, isn't 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 it well, on so its merits correct? It, it's not morally so then, correct. Well, so then I want to know. Where does this conception of rights come from, and how do you defend it? Uh, I mean, you really can't defend rights from morals because uh, they both ultimately are grounded in statements about what people ought to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, If uh, we say, this is yours, that implies other people ought to respect your property rights and keep their hands off of it. Mm -hmm. Property rights just are a moral claim. They're a claim that, uh, you know, even if there are no police around, (laughs) this is yours and it would be wrong for me to take it from you. Even if I'm bigger than you are, and even if I have some big friends, I still shouldn't take it away from you because it's yours. That is the idea of property, control over the world that other people have an obligation to respect. So law in Locke, and I think more generally, try is there to enforce property rights that people are already entitled to. But then we've got to figure out what kind of property rights would those be? Yes. And the kind of property rights we all, there's if there is going to be unequal property, but we're all going to agree to it, The uh, all of us have to have some reason to agree to the inequality. 
-hmm. All of us have to have some reason to think that inequality is okay. And the best answer to that question, I think it's most clearly stated by the 20th century philosopher, John Rawls, is that uh, inequalities are inequalities that everyone has an uh, has a reason to agree to if those inequalities are to the benefit of the worst off people mm-hmm. and capitalism if there's a social minimum can satisfy that test uh, there's no question capitalism has made most of the people in the world far better off than their grandparents sure, in okay. 1870 about something like 70% of the human race was living at about $2 a day poverty. Mm -hmm. Today, it's less than 10%. Mm -hmm. And that's because markets have been allowed to do their work and are continuing to do their work. More than half of the world is middle class in the sense that they've got some disposable income after they pay for their food, after they pay for their housing, they've got something left over. That is a consequence of free markets. The Hayekians are right about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ones who I'm arguing against want to extend that to a more general suspicion of government, which I think is misplaced. The place where suspicion of government has clearly done the most damage is with respect to climate change. Mm -hmm. An awful lot of people who identify as classical liberals have been in denial about this, and they've been quite effective at keeping the U.S. government from doing anything about it, Mm -hmm. and we are seeing the result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. I guess, so, so, I mean, I I agree with you. I think for the the, the, playing devil's advocate here, I think you can, obviously with rights, you can make the moral claim there. I I think that's the easy way. I would root it a little bit more in kind of our social nature right one of the, the 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 points that i make when i discuss these things with people is you we don't live on individual islands by ourselves if you live in uh, concert with other people in your neighborhood in your community you are by by virtue of being in the space with somebody else going to have to have a conversation about how you want to play along together in the sandbox if you will yeah, and and that's where I think the kind of social component—not, I don't mean that in a in a political way. I mean that just in a philosophical way. We are social uh, uh, creatures. We have to decide these things. So I think we've we've generally made this agreement that property rights are this is mine, which means mm-hmm. it is not yours, right? By that's by, the by, attraction by. of social contract theories. That, yes. Uh, yes. You know, unless it is the case that. Uh, the uh, unless uh, our rights come from God, uh, the, and uh, God hasn't made clear what those rights are for the most part. So then we have to agree to it ourselves, and right. whatever rights we have have to be rights that we all have reason to agree to. Yeah. So I guess I just don't understand how people. You know, I guess you could make maybe certain hierarchies, but like you're saying. You know, well, this check, I, I worked hard for it. This other person didn't go and work for me. Why am I giving this money to Social Security and I'm giving this money to Medicaid and Medicare, mm-hmm. all these programs for these freeloaders to just say, take, but this is my money, right? You know, mm-hmm. and it's the, the reality is, well, 
this happens all the time to people, as you're saying it in the idea of, you know, you can have a, an ambulance or a police yeah. officer. Although the beneficiaries of those programs, uh, you know, they're not freeloaders. They are people who earn lower wages right, in right, right. a capitalist economy. Right. The person who cleans my office at Northwestern University mm-hmm. is contributing to the process of operating the university in their way. Right. I am contributing it to it in my way. Mm-hmm. But uh, the market payment for each of us doesn't necessarily correspond to the intrinsic value of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to figure out what the relative intrinsic value is. Sure. Whatever yeah. it is, it's not the market wage. The market wage is a consequence of supply and demand. Right. It, uh, you know, I'm very lucky. It turns out that uh, you know, not a whole lot of people want to get the education that I've gotten, so I'm a scarce commodity. And uh <laughs> So, uh, you know, that's good for my wage. Uh, the person who cleans my office, uh, it happens that there are lots of people who have that person's skill set. So that person isn't uh, paid as well. But this has nothing to do with the intrinsic value of what I do or what that person does. It's purely a function of the accident of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. So what, what we yes. do know is that we both contribute to this process. Neither one of us is a freeloader. We both work. Mm-hmm. And then we ask, given that we can't figure out how what the value is of what each of us contribute, what is fair? Now, markets do tend to produce an awful lot of value. Mm-hmm. Probably the fact that there are markets means that the person who cleans my office lives in a nicer house mm-hmm. <laughs> and eats nicer food than they would if we didn't have a market economy. And that gives them a reason to agree to live in a market economy, even though there are people with more money than they have. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, I totally agree with all this. I, I think the arguments that people make is these very... I they feel I mean I don't want to be insensitive here but I mean they feel sort of cartoonish almost right it's just this yeah. kind of very one dimensional kind of way and it's like I wonder sometimes if people if they don't have it right in front of them or if it's yeah. not happening to them it's very hard for them what you just described makes perfect sense in my mind yeah but I well, think for then... other people they just don't see it so it's not there they don't they don't really recognize it or they don't have to, they feel they don't have to yeah, well, I mean, it is possible to uh, express that view as a philosophical argument. I spend a chunk of the book on Murray Rothbard, who is the most important philosopher you'd ever heard of, uh, who uh, really states this argument about, you know, look, this is my property, it's mine, you know, it's wrong for anybody, even the tax man, to come in, uh, take any of it. And Rothbard works this view out in elaborate detail, and he's enormously influential. He was the one who persuaded Charles Koch to start funding the Cato Institute and other libertarian organizations. He persuaded the philosopher Robert Nozick to write Anarchy, State, and Utopia, the most influential libertarian book of political philosophy. He was a mentor to Randy Barnett, who brought the Obamacare challenge, and he was the leading intellectual of the early Libertarian Party. And if you look at the platform of the Libertarian Party today, it largely has Rothbard's views baked into its platform. And so what I do in the book is I sort of bring out what his arguments are, and I look at them just bad philosophical arguments. <laughs> They're arguments that shouldn't persuade anybody. And I get into the weeds of this argument and I try to explain why. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely want to come to that. I guess uh, back to Locke for a minute. So the two, two principles are entitled to be rewarded for work and institution for property, big for libertarianism. I guess how, 
how, what can we say, I guess, between um, that people have this right for self-preservation and where, I guess this is the question, where does my personal rights, uh, you know, how does it collide with other people's personal rights? So they got their things, right? Each person in my neighborhood has their rights and I have mine. Where is the line between, well, that's too much here or it's too less here or we should be considered for others, but not, but less so. Is there enough variability here or is there kind of like a standard, at least from a Lockean perspective of what that looks like? Well, if you want to think in a social contract perspective, that's Locke's big innovation mm-hmm. to think about property as created by a social contract. We all agree that we're going to be better off if we protect people's property rights. Uh, and then we start thinking about, so what would a fair social contract look like? Right. What would a fair so what would a social contract look like if it weren't contaminated by morally irrelevant things like, well, I was born richer than you are, or I was born white, (laughs) things like that, that just have no moral weight at all. Mm -hmm. And so then I think we have to think about, well, what would we agree to if we didn't know any of those irrelevant things? Uh, It's more likely that a division is going to be fair if people don't know which bit they're going to get of the division. I mean, there's this old uh, rule that uh, if we've got to divide up a cake, uh, have one person cut the cake and then have that person take the last piece after everyone takes their piece. That gives a reason why you could expect that the pieces are going to be roughly equal. Um, And so the big uh, idea of the philosopher John Rawls, who I talk about a fair bit in the book, uh, and his modification of Locke is to say, well, if we're going to enter into a social contract, we should imagine ourselves in a position where we don't know any of these irrelevant things about ourselves, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're male or female, whether we're white or black, uh, you know, any of this stuff. And we ask, uh, what would we agree to if we didn't know where we were going to end up in society? And if you come, then you come up with rules where there certainly are property rights, but there is going to be redistributive taxation and there's going to be a fairly substantial state to make sure that the worst off people in the economy are as well off as they could possibly be. Because when you're drawing up the contract, you might be one of those people. And so you want to ensure yourself to make sure that if you end up being one of those people on the bottom, you still have a reason to endorse the system. You still got a reason to respect the property of people who have more than you do. Mm -hmm. So tell us, I guess, about Rawls, about this government taxation. You'll hear these things that people say about, you know, taxation is theft and all these, you know, silly things of sorts. I mean, obviously, we can make an argument about how is there too much taxes? Is it too less taxes? But I think the fundamental issue here is that many, maybe I could be wrong on this, but libertarians don't want any of it. Let me keep all my money to myself. You don't tax me on anything. Well, that was Rothbard's idea. Uh, But uh, in Rothbard's case, he needs to couple it with an astonishingly optimistic account of what anarchy looks like. Uh, Rothbard thinks, well... Uh, you know, it's, it's true that there are going to be some people who have a lot more guns than others, but uh, they understand that in a free market economy, there's more wealth than if bandits come and take what you've got. And there are also gains from cooperation. So if there are multiple armed 
groups. Those groups have an incentive to cooperate with each other. And so even without the state, we're going to be in the land of milk and honey. Uh, but this experiment has been done. There actually are places in the world where there are multiple centers of armed power. We call them warlords. Mm -hmm. They are not particularly good for business. Mm -hmm. And even, I guess, you know, in civilized circumstances, if uh, you want to know what what would it look like if in those civilized circumstances there were multiple centers of armed power with gains from trade? Well, we ran this experiment as well through the 20th century. There was the Mafia Commission, mm -hmm. organized criminals who uh, had the potential to make enormous amounts of money by illegal, selling illegal commodities, and they would make more money if there was peace with one another. However, it turns out that the history of the Mafia Commission in the 20th century is full of wars and assassinations. Mm -hmm. It happened every eight to 10 years mm -hmm. because the equilibrium would uh, get disrupted a little bit. Somebody would see an opportunity. That's the plot of The Godfather. This is not <laughs> a recipe for peace and prosperity. So I guess what is it, I guess, that, that again, with Rothbard is that there's, yeah, it seems there's this idea of non-aggression, but this idea that, look, if everyone's just, it, it feels like a kind of Pollyannish view of humanity. Like we're not going to like eventually at some points make mistakes that we're not going to fuck things up sometimes and that we're going to maybe harm other people intentionally mm -hmm. or otherwise. That's just humanity. Mm -hmm. How could you build a system in this like purest form where it's like, well, everyone's just doing their own thing and everyone gets to keep their own thing and everyone just kind of leaves everybody alone. Like how is that actually, how did he envision it actually working? That doesn't seem feasible. I think it just goes back to a fantasy of self-sufficiency. And also, uh, Rothbard just had a thing about the state. The fact that uh, there was government just bothered him. Uh, his, uh, there, there is a biography of him with a clever title. Uh, the biography is entitled An Enemy of the State. <laughs> it's perfect. Great title. him very well. Great title. Great title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just seems really unrealistic. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, Ayn Rand. So, I mean, people love quoting mm -hmm. Ayn Rand. Yep. What is, could you give us the kind of overview and your estimation of what's kind of your reading of her philosophy and then where people have this kind of kind of one-dimensional caricature almost of her philosophy and they're, they're not quite yeah. seeing it well? Well, I, I think the thing uh... – I mean, there are multiple Ayn Rands. Uh, the Ayn Rand of Atlas Shrugged, her last novel, which is the one that's most popular right. with libertarians, is one, it's a story where there are a few bold entrepreneurial geniuses who are the source of all value. And the problem is that uh, the government won't allow them to produce the value they could produce and is mooching over mooching off of them and is stultifying their potential. And the geniuses need to break free from this stultifying government. The idea that uh, I can, which I said before, is part of the core of libertarianism, the idea that uh, the individual can make it on his own, that's a persistent idea in Rand's writing, the early and late. And the heroes in Atlas Shrugged are very much like this. They are the source of all values. It really is, it's oddly a sort of inverted Marxism. 
In Marx, it is the people at the bottom who are producing all the value, and the people at the top are just parasites who are mooching off of them. In uh, Rand, it's the people at the top who are producing off the value, and all the workers below them are you know, kind of dull and living off their genius. And neither one of them really uh, captures what goes on in a capitalist economy where there's just lots of people with lots of skills who are producing lots of uh, things of a value, whatever the value is of captains of industry. I live in a house where the plumbing doesn't leak. And the reason why my plumbing doesn't leak is not because of some genius in a boardroom. It's because the plumbers who put in the plumbing in my house were competent and conscientious and did a good job. Right, right. And uh, so... It's distorted as a picture of the economy. That idea of the solitary genius does run through all of her writing. Although if you read The Fountainhead, there's a very different vision of capitalism. Uh, there's still the, the hero is a solitary genius, but the market is rewarding this newspaper publisher who is a demagogue and is uh, publishing garbage, but it still makes him rich. And the hero Howard Rourke's mentor is another architect who is neglected and starving and uh, you know, nobody appreciates him. And uh, you know, he dies uh, in obscurity. And uh, so... She doesn't have quite the same level of faith in the market in uh, Fountainhead mm. than she does in Atlas Shrugged. But a constant across her work is that uh, she really has seen government incompetence uh, in a big way early in her life. She lived through the Russian Revolution. Mm. Uh, she escaped Russia after the revolution. And she saw uh, what was a decently functioning economy in Russia brought to ruin by incompetent government bureaucrats, which really is the story of what was happening in Russia during the time that uh, she lived there. Her problem is that uh, she comes to the United States and she sees Bolsheviks everywhere. In, 19, in the 1960 election, she confidently predicts that if John F. Kennedy beats Richard Nixon, there will never again be another election because Kennedy is going to establish a fascist dictatorship. She's delusional. <laughs> I mean, Kennedy was <laughs> pretty centrist, you know, he's pretty modern, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty hilarious. She has she has these weird ideas about, about rights, and, and she mm -hmm. also has this idea about um, you know, about humans never having dependency kind of things we were just mentioning. What were some of her confusions, I guess, about rights? You talking oh, about that? Uh, I, even more than Rothbard, she just doesn't have a good idea of where they come from. They just seem to fall out of the sky and have the uh, status that she claims that they have. Right. And she just doesn't have any good argument at all. And uh, so I get into uh, what her writings are. Uh, and one of the things I say in the book is that there are uh, some really serious libertarian philosophers, people who've uh, spent their lives doing libertarian philosophy, who go to Rand looking for philosophical arguments, and uh, you know, they're terribly disappointed that they find that they're just bold conclusions with no arguments at all. Uh, she's just uh, way in over her head as a philosopher. And it is really unfortunate that she has fans in the United States with money. Uh, there's one foundation that has been giving money to lots of liberal, liberal, little liberal arts colleges that are not in a position to turn the money away. 
to establish philosophy programs where the students read Ayn Rand as if it were serious philosophy, which as a professional educator myself, I think is educational malpractice and mistreatment of students. Oh, 100%. I mean, I have many friends that are philosophers. They teach philosophy. They have doctorates in philosophy. And it's kind of a joke. I mean, like, no, people in philosophy don't. And and that's not because they, you know, don't want to consider her ideas or anything, but like as a, in the tradition of, you know, whether you want to use continental analytical philosophy, she's not doing any of those things at all. Yeah, no, no. Well, one of the things I try to do in the book is take all of these people seriously to respectfully consider their arguments, look at them in their strongest form, uh, not inject their personalities. Uh, you know, uh, Rand was a very difficult person. She drove people away from her all of her life. But her arguments are her arguments. They could be sound right. arguments. I don't try to bring that stuff in. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, the arguments are just not very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I fully agree. So let me ask this uh, kind of a, a, a broader picture here of sorts. Hayek, Rothbard, Nozick, Rand, they're all in agreement about not restricting people's liberty for their own good. What are their, I guess, holes here for for this idea of restricting people's liberty? Uh, And you mentioned also second order preferences. So what are the things in which they all agree? And then you're asking about uh, paternalism interfering with people for their own good. So uh, if the ultimate aim of a liberal, which you know, I count myself as, you know, I want people to be in control of their own lives, sometimes people are more able to control their lives if certain options are not presented to them. Uh, I think there would be fewer people who are able to look at their lives and think, well, that's the kind of life that I want if uh, fentanyl and methamphetamine were freely available at the 7-Eleven. Uh, that uh, people would get ensnared by these things and they'd be worse off. So, you know, I'm better off because I don't have those temptations in front of me. It's a very small number of things, but uh, it, uh, but if you want people to be free, that's a legitimate role for a government. It is good that there are financial incentives for people to save for retirement. Uh, it's good that uh, retirement plans have retire contribution as a default option that you've got to opt out of. An awful lot of our decisions are just reflective reaction, reflexive reactions to the options that we're given. We should structure the options in a way that in the end, leads people to have lives that they don't regret. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Is it kind of one of these things where it's like, we know people are going to make mistakes. We know people mm-hmm. aren't going to plan ahead. We know we all do it. Everyone that's mm-hmm. honest with themselves yeah. has had some version of that. And so I guess what's your, I guess your argument, I guess, for the role of regulation? Is it, mm-hmm. what's the the necessity of it? And well, do you think there is too much is there is there a ceiling to that where, where you can have too well, much regulation? I mean, it's 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 hard to be quantitative about this. I think it's just sort of a mistake. Uh, it's uh, you know, the uh, I mean, it really depends on the problem. Uh, you know, big problems require big regulatory solutions. Uh, the uh, you know, one of the biggest innovation of the Biden administration is this massive climate bill. 
Mm -hmm. that uh, was passed, which involves all kinds of massive intervention in the economy to shift our energy production away from fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we are facing the biggest catastrophe that the human race has faced in centuries. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the question of how much regulation you want really depends on what you want it for. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, little regulations, if that don't make a difference, if they are entirely silly and wasteful, then even though they're little, you should get rid of them. So I think that thinking about this quantitatively is a mistake. There certainly are regulations that are counterproductive and stupid. And one of the useful things that libertarians do is they point them out. And a lot of the time, they're right. Uh, if you pick up any issue of Reason magazine, which is I think, the best libertarian publication, they are full of horror stories about this or that action of government that is stupid and wasteful and oppressive. And the journalists at Reason magazine are very competent. They're very good at their jobs. They're usually right. right. Uh, but that doesn't, to the extent that there are government programs that are functioning well and are keeping people alive and that are keeping the water drinkable and keeping the air breathable. Well, Reason Magazine doesn't write about those. (laughs) They don't make a good story for Reason Magazine, so they don't make it in there. (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, I I totally agree. I guess, let me me do this. Let me ask it in this way. We've talked a lot about libertarianism. We talked about some of its kind of, you know, mutated form of liberalism. For you, I mean, you identify as liberal. I do as well. Um, uh, moderate liberal, if you if you want to if you want to put a little a little uh, tag on it, I guess. But what what in twenty twenty three? How do you see liberalism now, and and maybe its arc of where it was in the sixties and seventies, and where we're at now, as 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 different from um, you know maybe centrism or as from the progressive left, the very the progressives and and, and conservatives on the right. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, it's not monolithic except in its goals, and liberals will disagree with one another about this or that strategy for accomplishing the goal of giving people control over their own lives. But that's really the bottom line that uh, we're trying to achieve. Uh, And uh, so when we are active in politics, we are defined to some extent by our adversaries. Uh, the Republican Party uh, pre-Trump was, uh, you know, somewhat libertarian. They certainly, you know, during the Trump administration, lowering taxes uh, was basically all they could agree on. That group is still quite potent. There is a group of the Republican caucus who are prepared to crash the national debt and throw the world economy into recession because they are so desperate to reduce the size of government. So libertarianism is still quite alive there. But there's also this populist authoritarian streak, uh, best represented by Trump, uh, and that's a different adversary for the liberals to push back uh, on. I think that uh, there's a different set of problems from time to time. I think that any serious liberal is concerned about climate change. Uh, we until climate change became a potential issue, we weren't concerned about it. Mm-hmm. The world changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we uh, want to effectively control the spread of disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, one clear 
failure of libertarian philosophy is uh, the emergence of COVID. There's yep. no possible way in which that vaccine, those vaccines, would have come into existence unless government was willing to make yeah. enormous guarantees to the pharmaceutical companies that, look, whether the vaccine works or not, we're going to give you these enormous subsidies. We're going to uh, prepay for large number of the vaccines as soon as you guys are able to come up with something that works. And uh, you know, the market never would have got you there, or it would have taken many more years. Mm. So it really depends on what the problems are that you're trying to respond to. Let me let me ask you. We can. I want to ask you. I know you've written about it. I want to ask you about it. But um, I guess economically. So many times people look for to to liberals for their social policies, right? Where they're on the you know the cutting edge of many of those mm-hmm. things, or got their pulse mm-hmm. on where society is. But sometimes I think it gets missed that unless we're doing all of the things progressives want, because they're pretty loud bunch there, you know, all all of the mm-hmm. things, kind of the Bernie Sanders populism, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I guess from like a kind of your standard liberal or your moderate liberal, if you will, what is it kind of – what is their economic kind of philosophy look like? They believe in capitalism. They believe in free mm-hmm. markets, but also – a social net as well. Could you? What does that usually look like? Well, in your so mind? clearly, uh, we're concerned about uh, the losers in the economy. Uh, so uh, right now, uh, there's life is much more precarious than it used to be for people in the bottom half of the income distribution, mm-hmm. and so uh, this is, and that's just toxic for the society. More generally, uh, you know, I see young people, my students are more nervous about their futures than they ought to be. Young people ought to be willing to take risks and young people ought not to be terrified. They should be willing to uh, pursue what's interesting to them. But uh, so I think one consequence of having a more precarious economy is you get fewer English majors. People are afraid to be English majors. (laughs) This is a bad thing for the civilization. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you want to have those kinds of guarantees that uh, whatever the economy does, you and your family are going to be okay. That even encourages people to start businesses. We're getting fewer business startups than we used to, again, because people are scared. Uh, So that's bad for the economy. The other big issue that uh, small government people have trouble with is infrastructure and basic research. And uh, this is something that, you know, Trump could never get his caucus interested enough uh, to do anything about. Trump kept talking about infrastructure and it never happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, you had actually have to believe in government, believe that there is a role for government uh, if you are going to get uh, that kind of infrastructure, which you you can't really have the benefits of free trade unless there are roads and railroads and bridges that you can rely on. Mm -hmm. That is part of what creates the wealth. The market can give you this kind of wealth, but never without a powerful complementary role for government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I, I very much agree. I guess one thing I, I, I be we've chatted about in some ways, but this is funny slogan, I guess, of sorts. But people talk about this uh, end the Fed kind of thing. Is this again that kind of we don't want a central, essentially a centralized bank, you know, mm-hmm. monitoring things. We can just do it on our private banks or or mm-hmm. wherever you know, my bank down the road. Is is that kind of the mentality behind it or? 
that, that seems to be it. And again, you know, we ran this experiment all through the 19th century, yeah. and uh, there were horrible cycles of boom and bust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, ever since the Federal Reserve has been in place, uh, that has been modified, and uh, our big experiment with getting rid of financial regulation and having a very large sector of the economy with no regulation culminated in 2008. Mm-hmm. And yep. we saw how that went. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have not had a similar contraction since. And even now, after the really very bad shock of COVID, it was just terribly economically destructive, the economy seems to be recovering. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, we can do without the Fed, it's just, it's entirely uh, delusional. It's, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Somebody is uh, at uh, sea and they think, boy, I feel free. Suppose that I jump out of my boat and start swimming. I'll be even freer then. Mm -hmm. They don't really understand the conditions of their own existence. The Federal Reserve is one of the things that has made America as prosperous as it has been. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk, talk to us about uh, a little bit just about Obamacare. You mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. You mentioned yeah. I've written about it before. You early so early in the book and, and in the conversation, you said that Hayek and Obama aren't that far apart on some things. There's, there's well, a lot of- uh, it What's turned that? out I had not known this. I wrote an earlier book about uh, the Obamacare litigation. And I did not know the following fact when I wrote that book that uh, – Supporters of Obamacare like to say that the basic idea was come up with uh, in the 1980s by the Heritage Foundation. It actually was come up with in 1960 by Friedrich Hayek. Uh, He has this book called The Constitution of Liberty, and uh, he has some discussions of the welfare state there. And once again, he is thinking about Britain. He thinks that market competition is good. In Britain, there is a national health service. Doctors are on the government payroll. You, uh, if you live in Britain, you get sick, you walk into a public national health service office, they treat you, nobody ever sends you a bill. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, in the United States, if you need the police because mm-hmm. someone's trying to break into your back door, the police will come and they'll arrest the guy who's trying to break into your house and they won't send you a bill. Mm-hmm. This is just what they do. National health service is like that. Uh, Hayek thought, well, you know, the, by you are going to try to have any kind of cost controls for medicine. You got to have cost controls for medicine. You don't really need doctors on the government payroll. It would be much better if you gave people vouchers for them to buy private health insurance. Then the insurance companies could compete with one another uh, on both quality and price. And that would be more efficient than having just one single central government provided uh, health service. Of course, you'd have to uh, require everybody to have health insurance, and you'd have to have subsidies for the people who can't afford it. Well, this is what Hayek said in uh, 1960. And what I just described is Obamacare. That's just what Obamacare is. It is uh, subsidies for people who can't afford to buy health insurance, a requirement that everybody have insurance, a somewhat weak requirement, but most people find that they got to have it. Big subsidies for people who can't afford it. That's the basic this scheme. Is the, 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 the gold plan and the, the platinum or yeah. silver or whatever. Yeah, but you've got to have at least a minimal plan. Uh, and the minimal plan turns out that, you know, it'll take care of you if you get really sick. 
And yeah, uh, yeah. there are subsidies again, for people who can't afford it. This is the thing that uh, most troubled the Republicans, that uh, this is just massive redistribution. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, plan that the House of Representatives passed under Trump that the Senate could not stomach uh, was going to throw 20 million people off of health insurance in order to provide massive tax cuts for the rich mm. because they thought that's fair. It's the rich people's money. If other people can't afford to pay for their health insurance, that's their tough luck. Mm-hmm. So is this also Hayek's plan that, that you're talking about was also a part of the, the Romney plan when he was governor of Massachusetts as well? Is it kind of a similar um, Well, Romney, what Romney did in Massachusetts was basically the same plan that uh, we what uh, Obamacare just is Romney's plan made bigger. We yeah. provided health we provide subsidies to people who can't afford to pay for it. Uh, we require everybody to have insurance. We require the insurers to cover everybody, even if they've been sick. Uh, but, you know, Massachusetts was in a pretty fortunate position. Massachusetts had an unusually small, uninsured population. Massachusetts was an unusually rich state. And Romney actually formed a partnership with the senator from Massachusetts, Ted Kennedy, to uh, provide federal subsidies to support his plan. And many people with Obamacare, they got upset with the public option, which I never understood why, because if it's an option... Like it's yeah. just an option. You can still have the private options as well. And you can, I mean, why well, do you think people got well, so exercised about that? Uh, I understand why the insurance companies got exercised about it sure. because uh, the idea was that if, in addition to the competing insurance companies, there was a public option, that uh, the publicly financed option might be better and cheaper than the private insurance company's option, and that would crowd out private insurance. And if you are a private insurance company, you're going to hate that. Uh, why, and uh, and that was enough because you know Obama needed the support of the insurance companies. They were able to get that taken out. Uh, why anyone who was not an insurance company would be upset about that? I suppose you know Hayek would worry about it because Hayek would worry that the public option would be unrealistically low priced because uh, it would have public subsidies. And so even though market competition is good, it would drive out the private insurance companies and then we'd end up with something inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the strongest argument against a public option, but mm-hmm. it, it's based on a prediction that the public option is going to be able to have unrealistically low prices because it gets a subsidy. Mm-hmm. It might or it might not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I guess one of the the final questions I have here is is just about you've written this book, kind of you know detailing some of the arguments uh, uh, for and against uh, libertarianism, more against, I guess. What do you think is a better alternative? Do you see a type of, you know, kind of liberalism or some kind of pragmatic institutionalism, this ways of having these moderate types of ways to say, listen, if you understand libertarianism, where it comes from and its real things, it's not tenable. Here's the alternative. What's the like thing people could go to as the alternative, I guess? The alternative is big capitalism with a big welfare state. Uh, you know, quite a lot of uh, the innovations of capitalism, yeah. They're great. They make people's lives better. They, uh, I mean, one of 
Amazon has created the most efficient delivery system in the history of the world. It you know, can sometimes deliver incredible. stuff to you within 24 hours. Clear during the pandemic must have saved the lives of enormous numbers of people who would have gone to the store and they didn't. They had stuff delivered to them by a worker who worked outdoors mm. so that worker didn't have to inhale stuff. The conditions in the uh, plants or something else. And there are some issues there. But uh, overall, you know, it's terrific. But you can't leave everybody to the market. Uh, we've seen regimes in the world where you have this kind of uh, booming market, but the state makes sure that the people who lose out in the market competition aren't leading terrible, scary, precarious lives. And the wealth that a market produces gives you the resources to take care of everybody. Uh, part of the lack of faith in institutions that I think drives libertarianism is the consequence of the fact that uh, after Reagan, American policy has been to unleash markets without an adequate safety net. And so that leaves lots of people in scary, precarious conditions where they lose faith in everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I... I agree. I mean, I think I, I'm, you know, I, I like many of the aspects of capitalism. I do think we should avoid, and I think you would agree, crony capitalism. You know, oh, yeah. Massive, yeah. Massive no, you elements. want competition. Crony cop right. capitalism is about using the state to stifle competition. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. Uh, and and but you have to go after it at retail. Mm -hmm. You can't say, uh, you know, well, we've just got to get rid of the state altogether. Uh, you know, I mean, it's because there's just too much uh, that the state is doing that's indispensable. It's like telling somebody, you know, I can get rid of the pimples on your face. I'm going to cut off your head. Mm -hmm. right. It'll work. Right. Yes. But you won't have a head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the, the last question here is, is, what is it that people that read your book, what are the you know one or two things that you want them to kind of take away from and be like, yes, that's what I was trying to say. You got my main message or my main two messages. What is what are the what would those be for you? Uh that would be that uh you know, capitalism is great, free markets are great, but they need a pretty big and robust and efficient state in order to deliver the great things that capitalism can do for us. Mm. And so you need big-time capitalism with a big-time welfare state, that is the best life that human beings can hope for, and we can achieve it. But before we can achieve it, the voters have to see it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, ah, man, come, I mean, 24 is is, is around the corner, and, and we're going to be doing the whole election thing again, and just, I'm not really looking forward to it again. Uh, Andrea is a great conversation. Uh, the, the book is called Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Uh, I believe it's out everywhere. This is through St. Martin's Press. Where's the best places to, uh, to find yourself? Uh, so I have a website, andrewkoppelman.com, uh, and all of my books and articles are there. Uh, and I, I'm, uh, I uh, write regularly for The Hill, which is a political newspaper. Uh, I write in other places, too. I regularly contribute to a law blog called Balkanization. Uh, and, you know, if you Google me, uh, you'll find my name. Uh, but uh, what I want to say, particularly to this audience, is you probably know somebody who's a libertarian. 
if they would read my book, that would stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, listen, I can, I can, I can firmly agree with that. I think that uh, it was, it, it was, uh, you treated libertarianism as a philosophy very well. Try to look at the arguments and just kind of just see where it doesn't hold up. And uh, it's, it's done very well. And uh, big, big thanks to you, Andrew. I, I really enjoyed the conversation talking about all of these important issues. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, people will go out and get the book. So big thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course.